0: Litch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Mark Owen Jones about his new book, Digital Authoritarianism in the Middle East, Deception, Disinformation, and Social Media, just published by Hearst and Oxford. And then we'll talk to Andre Bonk and Sean Yeom, two of the authors of the chapter on authoritarian adaptation uh, in our book, The Political Science of the Middle East. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and this week's book segment, we're joined by Mark Owen-Jones of Hamid Bin Khalifa University in Qatar, author of the new book, Digital Authoritarianism in the Middle East, Deception, Disinformation, and Social Media, just published by Hearst and by Oxford University Press. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for joining us again.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: So we've been waiting for this book for a long time. It was a real pleasure to be able to read it. Um, can you tell us all a little bit about the inspiration for the book and what you were trying to accomplish with it?
1: Sure. I mean, I, uh, the inspiration comes from really um, back in 2011 when I started my PhD on the Arab uprisings. Um, I actually started my PhD looking at social media and its role in, in the uprisings. And, and I think, as I've mentioned before, um, you know, lots of people were focusing on the liberation paradigm, how technology would liberate. Us or allow activists or citizens to basically um, you know, uh, confront regimes there and, 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 and hopefully that would lead to democracy or democratization. But I noticed very quickly how social media and digital technology was being used as a tool of surveillance by the regime, by those who supported the regime. Uh, and, you know, the more I kind of studied that like, small case study of Bahrain, the more I saw different techniques being used uh, to to kind of basically repress social activism and social movements. So I became really fascinated in this because it was, you know, digital technology or rather social media was new and, and people were still sort of talking about it in these glowing terms. So it just became a, a natural springboard to look at. And even after the PhD, I started to, to notice this on a, on a Gulf-wide level that so much of the content I was seeing on Twitter and Facebook, it seemed to be, uh, there was always something suspicious about it. I mean, I noticed early on like bots, you know, Twitter bots, these fake accounts that, uh, that can like promote uh, propaganda and automate. Oh, I looked at, I was looking at automated hate speech, for example, sectarian hate speech. And I started developing methods that allowed me to track bots. Uh, and I started to, to, you know, get better at developing these techniques. And this allowed me to look at kind of large scale batches of data to to identify fake accounts and the more i did that the more i started finding other forms of manipulation um and you know then politics happened as it tends to do then we had the gulf crisis in 2017 and the funny thing about that was i was i was just downloading data related to sectarian hate speech and and bot accounts um still coming out of saudi and in a way i accidentally ended up with a data set mm-hmm. that i would be collecting over the the couple of days in which the gulf crisis broke and as you remember the gulf crisis was characterized by this kind of hack and leak operation but also loads of fake accounts um, that i was accidentally collecting because i was looking at something else to do with hate speech <laughs> and so then i was then i suddenly became you know someone who was uh, identifying all these uh, all this twitter manipulation social media manipulation at a time where you had this very uh, well-publicized and, and, and kind of um, unprecedented break in gulf relations really and I think that was the catalyst for it because at the same time that, that was happening we started to know there was all sorts of other forms of deception going on we had lobbyists in Washington in the UK all kind of getting involved in this gulf manipulation a, a big facet of that in this new media landscape was manipulation of social media and I was like this is not just an important phenomenon academically I think this is a story that needs to be told about social media, because social media is obviously something that's used by a lot of people the world over. And the extent of the manipulation, I think, in, in the Gulf was so profound and the Middle East itself was so profound. And uh, I think it, it, needed, uh, it was a story that needed to be told, especially because so much of the attention on social media manipulation had focused really on what was going on in the US with the elections. What happens in russia mm-hmm. and in china so i definitely thought there was space for that discussion
0: and it's interesting that you started this uh, looking at bahrain because of course they were one of the early pioneers of of kind of getting into the social media space and making it impossible to mobilize or have reasoned discourse about the the bah- bahraini uprising
1: i think they were real pioneers in that regard Yeah, I know. I mean, people don't often say Bahrain is a a pioneer in anything because it's so small. But I think what's interesting about the country, it's often in some ways a bellwether for a lot of things that happens in the region. It's small. It's got a lot of technological penetration. By that, I mean, lots of people have uh, smartphones, access to digital media. You know, it's an island as well. So it's kind of constrained. So the opportunities, I suppose, for policing, social media policing are quite intense there. And I think that was an, a really interesting case of, of Bahrain. It was a very, as a case study, it was a relatively, as a small country, it was quite not an easy case study. I don't mean easy, but you could probably witness some of the things that were happening more easily Mm -hmm. than if you were looking at, say, Syria or or Tunisia or Egypt, which are more capacious. And I don't mean more complex, I think it's just a little harder to get a sense of what's going on in those spaces.
0: And it's really interesting because, you know, when I was looking at Arab Spring uh, social media back in 2011, 2012, like that kind of data, I mean, nothing is pure, but most of it felt like it was mostly authentic, actual individuals who were engaged. And uh, I think that kind of research basically can't be done anymore.
1: I think you've shown that pretty, uh, pretty conclusively. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing I hope to do. And I actually wrestle with this, this question a lot, Mark, because I'm very cynical, as you know, and that cynicism is partly a product of the research I'm doing. And, uh, you know, when I started in 2011, that same level of hope and optimism, I don't think that hope and optimism was just from naivety, you know, from this idea that social media was new, and that therefore it could be trusted. I do think, you're absolutely right that there was uh, less manipulation going on and that plays out with social movement theory because usually what happens is new technologies emerge activists and people will use it and then regimes adapt so that obviously indicates that there is this period of time this honeymoon period in which that technology does realize those kind of liberation potentials but yeah I absolutely think it's hard to determine that now I mean when I was doing some research on sectarian hate speech I I wondered about previous studies because those previous studies had not explicitly delineated or made caveats for the existence of bots or fake accounts? Mm-hmm. How much, for example, could those fake accounts be distorting the, uh, the information about whether you know, this kind of discourse was genuine or not? And I think that's true now. How do you know when you study social media data, whether the, the voices that you're you know, discussing actually reflect real human opinion? Uh, and so using social media data as like a barometer uh, not of public opinion but as a qualitative source is fraught with these problems if you can't identify deception then the data is problematic and the problem is yes we can identify some forms of deception but there's probably plenty of other deception in those data sets that we don't know about and have not yet identified so it's so problematic and i agree with you and i wonder and i i i, I know this might sound a bit dramatic but you know i think that normative ontology before about social media is where you get approached by an account. There's a normative assumption that that account is probably a real person, maybe acting in good faith. Now, how do you know, at what point is it actually sensible to make a normative assumption that a, a Twitter account that's anonymous is a real person? Right. And, and maybe I've just been doing this too long, uh, but <laughs> at the same time, I just there's just no reason, I have no basis to know that that person has good intentions and it's real, and, and that is quite scary. Yeah, it's a very it's a very
0: different type of discourse. Um, Why don't we like take a step back and uh, digital authoritarianism. um, You know, there's different varieties of it. There's the surveillance and hacking types of things. And then I think there's what you really focus on in this book quite uniquely, which is the disinformation and the manipulation of online social media discourse. So tell us a little bit about that and how you saw Gulf governments, Gulf regimes um, getting into this kind of digital manipulation in such a big way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, a, you know, digital authoritarianism, as you mentioned, includes things like surveillance, um, surveillance technology, which I touch on briefly. I mean, it's not the main, main focus yeah. of the book. But I think disinformation um, is such an interesting aspect of this because it is related to the notion of propaganda and propaganda is not new. We know governments have done this since time immemorial, especially in the Middle East. Uh and you know the state has traditionally censored media. Um disinformation I think is an interesting one because I mean I I also use the term deception. So deception is is the Mm -hmm. kind of willful manipulation of the public sphere um using methods that are deceitful. And that can include disinformation, false information. Uh, And the reason I, I think this is interesting is because you know, I think so long as media has existed in the Gulf, there's been censorship, there's been state censorship, there has been the desire to control narratives in such a way and exclude other narratives, right? And some of that has involved fake news and, and, and disinformation. I mean, Bahrain is, again, an example I come back to, you know, you know, since the 60s and 70s, or especially since the 70s, the Bahrain government have used the media to basically exaggerate and lie about, for example, shipments of weapons coming from Iran to Bahrain to arm. To arm activists and these are known lies so we know that the lying the disinformation has always existed i think it's because social media created a challenge for, for gulf regimes because you know regardless of how much you can control the public space social media does allow citizens to have a voice and so how do you either shape the nature of that conversation online so it doesn't become about mobilizing criticism against the regime well you have to do a number of things you can resort to censorship which is stop people talking you can do that through intimidation through arrest but you can also try and, and limit the menu of topics of conversation that exist in that space and to do that you can you know not use bots to to create uh, astroturf opinions to mm-hmm. promote the opinions of people that you agree with or those kind of things disinformation itself is a way of I think redirecting people's emotions in very specific ways this information is often emotional so if you have like a divide and conquer strategy which many governments do and we saw this particularly in in you know sort of uh, the eastern province in, in bahrain of playing up sectarian divides in order to kind of disrupt the unity of social movements there what do you do you can exaggerate the amount of hate speech you can exaggerate the amount of sectarian hate speech you can you can you know create these conspiracies about boatfuls of weapons coming online and you do that on social media and then it has the 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 it, what it does it fragments the discourse online and and allows social media to be a weapon in which disinformation simply uh, is aligned with the kind of political goals of, of the regime so it's a really important way because at the end of the day ideas and thoughts matter what the public thinks matters so you need to try and find some way of influencing what people think and if people are using social media to get access to information you need to be a player in that space
0: now, this is a, I think, something which is common across the globe at this point. Um, but uh, I think the book gives special attention to Saudi Arabia. Uh, the cover of the book is covered with flies, um, with uh, kind of a, a nice uh, little backhanded reference to Saud Qatani and the uh, the Lord of the Flies. So, tell us about Mohammed bin Salman Qatani and like the distinctive Saudi approach to this kind of social media
1: uh disinformation manipulation etc well first i'd like to add that i designed the flies on the cover so i'm kind of <laughs> proud of that <laughs> <laughs> one of the things i'm most proud of <laughs> yeah thank you um but yes the the electronic flyers which is a synonym really for bots and trolls um our reference to you said, Qasani, who was a royal court minister and a very close uh, confidant of mohammed bin salman i think what's very interesting is that you know Saud al Qatani is in a way the kind of eminence greets behind a lot of, of what is seen as Saudi's digital or the weaponization of digital space and whilst he's obviously an important figure it's it's very easy to attribute a lot of um, certain behaviors to individual figures and I think we tend to do that when we study Middle East regimes sometimes it's true sometimes it's not sometimes it's a product of simply a lack of access or good access but, but I think Saud al Qatani was a very important figure and we have evidence for that you know I think one of the, the, the most telling examples was he was the kind of leader of a, a network of um, sort of employees who engaged in basically intimidating and harassing people online, who criticised Mohammed bin Salman. And these people didn't work in a big sort of call centre, as is often imagined, although maybe some did. But in this case, they worked from home. You know, they they sort of operated via WhatsApp. They would receive a menu of accounts or messages to send every day, and they would use that to to kind of attack people. And Kutani was be, believed to have orchestrated that. He was often heard to be talked about by people in this world as the boss. And you know, he 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 was also responsible for soliciting technologies that could um, be used to manipulate social media, such as you know, he was found to be kind of active on hacking forums, asking whether people could supply technology that would allow a Twitter account to be suspended or your YouTube account to be suspended. So he was really kind of prime movement in this. And what was very interesting about Sadr al this wasn't a secret, really. Some of these things, probably he didn't want to be found out, but he was a very active interlocutor on Twitter himself. So he kind of led from the front in the sense he would go to Twitter and take to Twitter. And every time there was some sort of um, important political moment or crisis, he would be the first in the line. So when the Gulf crisis happened in 2017, he was there on Twitter saying, if anyone shows, support for Qatar, in this case, put their names on this blacklist, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, this would get loads and loads of t- tweets. So that was really interesting. And, and I think Saudi Qatani was a big part of that, but it was emblematic, I think, of a broader approach that Saudi had. You know, Saudi is the most populous country in the Gulf and one of the most populous Arab countries uh, there is. It has high technological penetration rates. It has a large youth population you know, there's this idea that without uh, a big change, then the, the youth bulge would be uh, a potential threat to the Saudi regime. So how do you then use social media to kind of drive or encourage your, you know, sort of reforms, I think is what was happening a lot under Mohammed bin Salman. And this is why I think social media was such a sensitive point for the regime. Um, it was such seen as such an important part of trying to build Mohammed bin Salman's prestige and also broadcast his achievements to his followers and engage the youth, right? Because of Saudi's large youth population. And so I think this is why you see some of the these dramatic uh, stories related to Saudi in terms of social media. You know, I think one of the most egregious examples, uh, which I talked about in the book is, is the fact that they, you know, members linked close to the Saudi Royal Court were coordinating with Twitter insiders um, to basically try and send sensitive data from Saudi dissidents from Twitter's headquarters back to Saudi. Now, a jury in, in, in California, I think or was Washington, California, recently found a Lebanese American citizen guilty of basically working with the Saudi regime to send secret Twitter data back to Saudi. Now, this is a huge step to actually infiltrate uh, the company in a country who is one of your closest allies, I think indicates or is reflective of this real importance that the Saudi regime put on Twitter and the ability of social media to be a key driver of legitimizing Mohammed bin Salman's reforms. So I think that's why Saudi is such an interesting case in this. Well, you remember all the way back, I mean, years and years ago,
0: um, Twitter was like widely celebrated uh, among Saudis and Saudi watchers as like the new public sphere. This is where everybody was. This is where the debates were happening. Um, And I think just like with social movements and uprisings, regimes tend to go where they see potential threats things that are important yeah
1: yeah it's it's classic i mean we saw this with the clubhouse Uh, i don't know if clubhouse is still a thing but i suppose for the benefit of listeners it's uh it's like a it's an audio forum chat where you can go and you just hear people's voices talking about it but that came out about a year ago and we had the same buzz Oh, clubhouse is great and loads of people going to clubhouse to, to talk about relatively sensitive issues but sooner or later you'd uh you'd have People complaining that there were people in the group who were clearly from the intelligence Mm. agencies, trying to undermine the the kind of discussion or intimidate people, or people who recorded the conversations and then put them on Twitter. So, yeah, I think what we see with all these technologies is that honeymoon period again, where people see the potential, they attempt to use it, and then the regime is like, hang on, and then gets involved. Uh, I want to go back to something you said a
0: few minutes ago um, because I think it brings out an important kind of conceptual issue. Um, you know, we talk, you know, you we use like the shorthand bots all the time, but you actually distinguish, I think, quite effectively between bots, trolls, and cyborgs um, that not everyone you see who's parroting regime propaganda is necessarily a bot.
1: No, absolutely not. I mean, you know, Bot is a bot is a technical term for an automated account that's been set up by some form of software, right? So a bot is quite easy to distinguish. Troll is behavioral, you know, I could troll someone and as a verb where I just be engaging in some form of antagonism and that could be abusive. It could be being facetious or whatever. So trolls is a bit more ambiguous. Trolls could, in theory, be real people paid by an entity, whether a regime or a company, to engage in that behavior to censor other people. Or a troll could actually be seen as someone who's, a, who's just a real person, hyper-nationalistic and legitimate, I say legitimately, but defending their regime because they truly believe it. Mm-hmm. The behavior aspect is trolling because it's a form of behavior. But they might just be a, you know, a citizen who believes in what they're saying. So I think it is important to make those distinctions. And we know that not all this kind of Hyper nationalism or the desire to defend particular Gulf governments is just a fabrication. There are obviously people who believe in that, and it's important to acknowledge that, but it doesn't mean that their behaviors online are, are healthy. And then you've got <laughs> your cyborgs, contributing cause... to toxic. Toxicity. Then you got the
0: cyborgs, like you were talking about before, where you have like a single person who might be operating a dozen accounts.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, yeah the cyborg, and um, obviously. You know the terminology is interesting but yeah half human half machine um which is it's probably to be honest how a lot of bot networks work uh, and in some cases you'll have one account that might be operated by multiple people mm-hmm. um as well but you know i think a lot of accounts have uh, some degree of automation and some degree of intervention by a real person because the automation allows efficiency allows you to manage 20 accounts uh easily but then also having that human input also gives them an of human credibility, making them much more harder, for example, for, for social media companies to detect manipulation. Now, one part of the book, which is, I think, uh, you know,
0: kind of unusual for an academic book, but which is quite entertaining, is that you'll, um, also, you'll often give uh, anecdotes or vignettes of your own online sleuthing activities and uh, tracking down uh, some of these um, fake accounts and, and all that sort of thing. Tell us a little bit about one of these or some of your favorite examples of
1: where you were able to
0: unmask uh,
1: some of the, uh, the people behind these accounts. Yeah, I think one of my, I mean, there's a few examples. I like the fake journalist one, but I also like one of my strange interactions with this with this guy called, uh, I, in the book, I call him Magnus Callahan. Now, this is exactly what happened. But I remember I was approached about two years ago by this gentleman uh, who, you know, he had a real photo of a, a real person, a guy wearing a lilac shirt, a very thin mustache, middle-aged, um, you know, white male. And he sort of... S- he, he used to troll me online randomly. And I remember he, in his bio, he had like a Saudi flag and a UK flag and a US flag. And he was like, you know, make America great again. So it was a very kind of unusual profile. And he said on his profile, that he had this experience of living in Saudi for 20 years or something. And every now and then he would just troll me saying, Mark, what, who are you? Why do you support Iran and Qatar and support terrorism? And then he, he messaged me. right? And the first thing he messaged in my inbox was bizarre. It was a screenshot of his passport. And the passport photo was exactly the same as his profile photo. He blacked out some of the details, but he he said, oh, I'm not just a bot mark. Here's my passport. And it was funny because in his attempt to actually trying to det- prove that he was a, a real person, a real human boy, he actually just made me more suspicious. And then over time, we had these discussions. And every now and then he would just say, oh, where are you from? i am like, Wales. And he's like, I lived in Wales for a bit. And we'd talk about esoteric um, you know, British sitcoms, or he'd talk about battle, Battlestar Galactica. And then, you know, every now and then I'd get these really strange vibes from him because he'd suddenly sound like he was a different person. You know, it was like Schmeagol from Lord of the Rings, kind of alternating in tone, and it was very odd. And then soon I started to find these contradictions, right? He'd, he'd sort of say to me, Mark, why don't you criticize Iran? You should criticize Iran. Move from Qatar, go somewhere else. You know, you'll be much more loved there. And it was really odd conversations. And then he'd say something like, uh... I'd be like, so I was like, Magnus, why do you care about the Middle East so much? He's like, I don't, I don't know anything about that. And he's like, I've never been to the Middle East. And then I'd be like, in my head, because I didn't want to give it away, I was trying to sort of bait him, see what he'd said on his profile, he lived in the Middle East for 20 years. It was very odd. And then, and suddenly he'd be like, um, he used to be an English teacher, and then, he's, I, and then I said, let's Skype, because I wanted to Skype him to actually see who, if he was the real person in this photo. And he's like, oh, sorry, my English isn't good. I'm not a native speaker. This is about after a month of talking. So he'd gone from like a really English guy who spoke, you know, perfect English. We talk about Heidi High and, and things like that to someone who said they didn't speak English. Um, and then he started getting really paranoid. He, he was following my movements, and he knew I was going to a com- conference in Helsinki uh, to present my research on saudi bots and he's like mark i'm really worried about when you go to helsinki i was like oh why magnus he's like there's a, a finnish researcher called jennifer Arra, and i'm she's stealing your research and sending it to nato i was like what uh, i don't do you have any evidence of this and he's like no no and then he disappears and then in helsinki after disappearing he messages me he's like so you're in helsinki i was like yes and he's like okay and then we sort of joked around a bit and then he says i was sort of playing along saying okay you know um it's been nice speaking to you. And it's like, listen, I'm working in Estonia. If you come here, we should visit. Here's the contact details of your a handler who will get in touch. Uh, but meanwhile, I'm going to de- delete my account because of OPSEC, so operational security. I was like, that's really weird. So he deletes his account. Then a few days later, I sort of check on it. And I find his account because I, I kept the ID number because mm-hmm. every Twitter account has a unique ID number. And so I'd actually put that into the ID thing to find that he changed his handle to another name and it was called like Jennifer Mago or something and suddenly his account was now a Cuban teenager speaking in Spanish and supporting America like Trump and I said like, what the hell like actually speaking Spanish like a totally different persona and then he comes back to being Angus and so I kind of documented this whole thing and then he starts like threatening to sue me and stuff and and then it died out but That's it was a crazy interesting- creepy episode yeah, but it was weird because he was, at, at, during this whole conversation, he was trying to pump me for information on quite specific things about these. You know, it's so funny because he's like, I know nothing about the Middle East, but can you tell me specifically about this Qatari uh, company, Bazan Holdings, who has interests in these countries, X, Y, Z. So it was like he was working for some corporate intelligence firm. But wow. this, you know, this is just one account. And I imagine there's countless ones out there. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think these interesting stories, or at least funny stories, a part of the approach I went with the book, you know, I believe in public in- impact, academia, you know, I think a lot of these, especially the stuff with social media, is is stuff that people need to know about. I believe in digital literacy. Mm-hmm. I think people need to be made more aware of the potential for manipulation and exploitation that can happen. Because at the end of the day, right, when we use social media, digital media, what we do online kind of potentially saves forever. And people now who are like students, whether at mm-hmm. Georgetown or someone else, one day could be politicians, right? And they could easily be the targets of any of these operations and the information they exchange could be manipulated and used against them. Ten years time. People need to be savvy about this.
0: You know, I follow all this stuff quite closely. And even I had forgotten some of these episodes. Um, It's really interesting to see. Um, Maybe like the last thing we could talk about is kind of ground zero for all of this, as you indicated at the beginning of this conversation, was the 2017 Gulf crisis and uh, Mm -hmm. the sheer scale and scope and magnitude of the information operations that were going on around that time, kind of beggar the imagination. Walk us through it a little bit, some of the ways in which you saw this kind of inauthentic activity um
1: Being deployed in, uh, the, in in this like battle with Qatar: yeah, so I think one of the most important things for the inauthentic activity around Qatar was was to make sure that anyone looking about reading about the Gulf crisis uh, would be exposed to uh, information attack in Qatar, right mm-hmm. So what I did, I remember I did a a, a study where I downloaded uh, any tweet that mentioned the word Qatar during May and June, because what I wanted to see was on the whole information about Qatar on Twitter, negative or positive, right? And what I found is that the majority of accounts mentioning Qatar, the word Qatar, so that's kind of a diagnostic, were fake accounts. And that the majority of that information was basically um, uh, fake accounts retweeting these anti-Qatar accounts that were basically um, uh, highlighting the demands made by the blockading countries of Qatar, right? So what you saw was it's an issue of salience. How could, how was social media manipulated to promote these uh, criticisms of Qatar? And that was one of the big things that I noticed. It was the manipulation in particular of Twitter of the salience of information. And There was other things done as well that were very interesting, like the manipulation of trending topics in Qatar. I think one particularly interesting aspect was this kind of what I call coup baiting, right? And this mm-hmm. involves al Qatani again. There was an interesting example where it, the top trend in Qatar was like, which means we want you to go to meme. It was like an anti-tameem hashtag. And Saudi Qatani in Saudi takes a screenshot saying, the number one trend in Qatar is, we want you to go to meme. And then his next tweet was, oh, if the Qatari government do anything to inter- intervene in the legitimate demands of the Qatari population, there'll be consequences. So he was using this trend as like a barometer of public opinion to basically threaten Qatar. Mm-hmm. And what's actually interesting, when you analyze the, the hashtag, you found that most of the accounts were sadly based and the Qataris or Qatari accounts on the hashtag were criticizing the hashtag. Right. And so it was kind of interesting how it was manipulated in that way. But, you know, I think another interesting aspect of this, and I think it's good to mention before uh, we go on is, is I make a big point about the disinformation supply chains. We've been talking about states, but we know now based on evidence for example submitted to the department of justice or not evidence rather documentation submitted to the department of justice in the us that a lot of the people involved in these kind of operations or similar operations in, in the gulf crisis are like western companies we know you know i, I talk about how a company a project associates the british company based out of dubai worked with the parent company of cambridge analytica to create anti-catar ads mm-hmm. place them in facebook and have them promoted and also create essentially what were like uh, astroturfing accounts to promote again the message of the blockading country. And to me, this is phenomenal. You literally have Western companies engaged in an information operation that is contributing to the destabilization of the Gulf region, a region that's already kind of has issues of conflict and being unstable. And yet this is perfectly legal and above board. They even, they even organized uh, extremely, um,
0: extremely academically rigorous conferences in Washington about Qatar contra- yeah. terrorist state.
1: Yeah, and, and I, I heard they showed a lot of videos as well. <laughs> and they, they got a lot of mileage out of when Trump criticized Qatar. Uh, and, you know, I always cite mm-hmm. the example in class as well, Well, you know, um, of how pro-Saudi entities managed to manipulate the timeline of the U.S. president by boosting his, his tweets about Qatar, which, uh, about Saudi, which is quite interesting when you think about information integrity, mm-hmm. right? Should a foreign state be allowed to artificially amplify the popularity of a tweet by another government? kind of weird question then it was
0: it's more than just like hashtag manipulation and trending topics though for example you know you you have a you tell a story about um when they started uh, trying to say that a coup was happening and using yeah. um you know videos of explosions and things like that trying to create this image uh of things happening in doha
1: yeah that was that was a particularly uh, egregious example i remember being woken up in the morning with a, a friend saying have you seen see what's going on in Qatar and all, are you okay? I heard there's a coup going on. I was like, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> so I woke up thinking this could be possible. Uh, and I, I remember checking Twitter and there was like in Qatar, that coup in Qatar. And I, I analyzed the hashtag and I started seeing this, these thousands of accounts were, were posting these videos of gunshots going on, explosions. It was all very dramatic. But very quickly I thought, wait, this looks dodgy. Started doing reverse image searches and the videos of explosions were taken from like Xinjiang in China from like five years ago. They were the ones about, there been gunshots near the palace in Qatar. It's actually a video from Saudi from several years ago. But there were dozens of these videos. There was even videos of like helicopters flying around Doha, real videos, saying that the Turkish uh, army had basically been working with Tamim to try and repel a coup attempt. But these videos, obviously, when you found out, looked at them, were from a few years ago when they were just joint military operations with Qatar. But this story exploded, right? And it broke out. I say broke out into regular media and by breakout i mean go from social media to traditional media and you know Al-Arabiya and these other channels even sky news arabia i think take reporting on these stories like there's rumors of a coup in qatar right and i thought this was actually a really interesting and cynical use of fake news because firstly again i think they were they, you know i'm not sure of the intention of this campaign there could have been a number of ones i, I would say that part of the what the, the blockading countries appeared to be doing was try to generate the illusion of popular sentiment against the regime in Qatar in order maybe to generate uh, an actual political movement as we've seen in, we saw in Iran on Operation Ajax, for example. Coup-baiting, trying to promote coup. But also to maybe t- t- legitimize to the domestic audiences that this blockade, which is quite harmful, was actually worthwhile because Qatar was in this mess, or to maybe show to the international community that Qatar was unstable and therefore unworthy of you know, development and investment and that kind of thing. But you know, what was interesting is how everyone was actually on board with this. And I think this is a really interesting tactic. What I think the regimes do, they create this uh, blah blah blah, this kind of commotion on social media, as if it's an organic grassroots thing. Mm-hmm. And then, then it expands from influencers into the traditional media, as if the traditional media are just they're you know, just reporting on what's going on, like it's you know really organic. But you know. If you're going to post this video on Al Arabiya showing this video that could be a coup in Qatar, even though dozens of people on, on social media have already said this is clearly fake, here's the original, then you, there's a degree of cynicism there because you know that journalist is either really bad at their job or basically they're being instructed to actually report on this rumors of a coup as if it's real. Well, we all, exactly well we all know that journalists happened. live on Twitter more than anybody else. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, it was just nonsensical, but this was huge, you know. I mean, this was picked up by so many people. and. What's another interesting example, again, of the networks of how this works is that the India Arabia, so the India Arabia is the independent, which is like a British uh, newspaper, and it's been franchised out to have uh, Mm -hmm. independent Arabic, independent Farsi, Turkish, and I think Pashto. But what happened was, is that the the Saudi conglomerate bought up uh, the ownership uh, of these, the independent in these languages. And so what you had in the independent Arabia, for example, after this happened, was an article That was basically saying that there'd been rumors of a coup in Qatar and there was probably a coup and the basis for the article's truce was citing social media accounts that were documenting this supposed coup in Qatar however I I quickly identified early on that these social media accounts were fake they'd been changing their names and posting fake content and very soon after that they were suspended and a a few months ago they were released by Twitter as one of the examples of a state-backed influence operation so we know this was a state-backed influence operation and now we also know that it was uh, this state-backed influence operation on Twitter was used then as the basis for newspaper articles legitimizing this. And just to, to kind of round off that story, I think what was so interesting about it is that they're reporting on it even as there's rumors of a coup in Qatar is highly misleading. Because all you're doing by that is, is giving credence to this notion that there could be a coup. When in fact the story should be there was a fake campaign about a coup in Qatar, right? Because that's what it was uh, and there was no basis for any legitimacy. However, it was, you know, it seemed to, 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 to spread like wildfire through the region. So I do think these pseudo events, this manufacturing of fake events, is something that we're going to see more and more of on social media, and it's very detrimental. And not just in the Gulf. And I think that's one of the interesting things about this book
0: is that this is, uh, you know, it's a great case study of the Gulf. But I think that the uh, the issues you identify about the manipulation of reality online uh, are obviously endemic to politics, uh, kind of globally speaking now. And I think uh, we're going to be seeing a lot more of it going forward. Um, Mark, it's been great talking to you. we been talking to Mark Owen Jones about digital authoritarianism in the Middle East. Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for joining the program.
1: Thanks a lot, Mark. It was good to be here.
0: This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. Each week this fall, we're talking to some of the authors of chapters in the edited volume, The Political Science of the Middle East, Theory and Research Since the Arab Uprisings, which was edited by myself, Jillian Schwedler, and Sean Yom, and is a product of a long process shepherded by Pomeps and includes almost 50 authors. Today we'll be talking about chapter two, Authoritarianism Reconfigured, Evolving Forms of Political Control. It was written by a team that included Andre Bank, Eva Bellin, Michael Herb, Lisa Wadeen, Sean Yom, and Selwa Zarhoni. Genuinely, an all-star cast. Uh, joining us today on the podcast are Andre Bank and Sean Yom. Uh, thank you for joining us and for speaking about this chapter. Why don't we begin with uh, with Sean? Uh, could you give us a general sense of kind of the broad framing of the chapter and what you know what exactly? have we learned since 2011 about authoritarianism uh, in the Middle East since uh, the Arab uprisings?
2: So we learned, and this is the guiding impulse of the chapter, that authoritarianism in the Middle East and North Africa region uh, has remained the predominant form of government and regime type, uh, but just because the region still has a profundity of non-democratic types of government does not mean that those types of governments, these non-democratic regimes, are static. They've changed, they've reconfigured, they've adapted to changing domestic, uh, ideational, and transnational conditions. And the purpose of our chapter was to both capture the state of, uh, of Middle East scholarship in charting out the different adaptations and the evolution of authoritarian, authoritarianism in close dialogue with comparative political science up to the Arab Spring, and then very carefully parsing out the detailed responses of different states and regimes to the Arab Spring uh, while highlighting the strategies and the innovations that different that these regimes have undertaken to maintain power push back democratic opposition, uh, rebuff pressures, uh, and in general sustain uh, their political order over the last decade.
0: So and this scholarship on authoritarianism is one of the few areas where we've seen real interest in the broader comparative politics literature uh, beyond the Middle East, right?
2: Yes, uh, you're absolutely right, Um, and I would say that myself and my co-authors and so many of our other colleagues in the field of Middle East political science have been working uh, at the frontier of the literature on authoritarianism for decades now. Um, If we define authoritarianism as political systems marked by highly limited pluralism, um, highly constrained mobilization, a very strong centralization of power, and very limited civic uh, or political freedom, then we find that most of the regimes and states in the region fall in that category. Uh, There are different types of these regimes. Uh, There are republics, there are monarchies, and even within each subtype, regimes and states are not the same. Uh, But the fact that democracy is relatively scarce in the region has meant that for over a generation now, scholars have been trying to figure out not just the origins of authoritarianism across the MENA, but also the reasons and the logics by which they endure over time, despite the fact that there have been pretty broad ranging changes elsewhere in the world about the march of democracy and the nature of political order. And among the many contributions over the past 30 years, well, far far before the Arab Spring, uh, that MENA comparativists have made, for instance, Uh, is the fact that the regime types that comparative political scientists have classically used to think about authoritarian regimes, uh, which are dominant party-led regimes, military-led regimes, or personalistic regimes, where it seems that much power is concentrated in a single person. Oftentimes, those subtypes can blur, and those conceptual categories can be very fuzzy in some regimes uh, in this region. Uh, not only do those classical types of comparative political, uh, um, uh, 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 classical types of autocracies and comparative political science, not only do they exclude monarchies, which are a major form of authoritarianism in the region, but but they also take for granted the idea that there are very sharp institutional divides between these different regime types. When in reality, in the MENA, for instance, will often find historically and now republics, non-monarchical regimes and states where presidents will be appointed for life. They have a lot of power, but they're still a ruling party, uh, for instance. So conceptually speaking, the MENA bucks the trend in many ways in comparative political science. Now, dovetailing on- onto that is the other, I think the other great advance of regional political science, which is to provide very interesting, important arguments and explanations for why various kinds of dictatorships have survived for so long in the MENA region. And here on the one hand, MENA comparativists have agreed and in fact have provided theories to their non-MENA colleagues in comparative political science by pointing to variables like institutions, such as in some cases, hegemonic ruling parties very powerful ruling coalitions, uh, very violent, coercive organizations, um, state-controlled judiciaries, institutions like these that help rulers survive in the face of economic crises and pushback, democratic opposition. They've also been, I think, at the forefront of highlighting external factors and transnational forces and propping up uh, some of these states. Uh, But in other ways, MENA scholars have uncovered factors and explanations which are very, very different than other regions and the broader comparative political science literature in explaining why these non-democratic regimes tend to endure over time. Uh, For instance, uh, while international factors are important for many dictatorships in the post-Cold War era, it often seems to us in in, in the Middle East that the Middle East has a unique conglomeration of variables and interests that attract attention to a degree that most other regions have not, whether it's the presence of Israel and the Palestinian issue, uh, energy interests involving hydrocarbons, uh, strategic interests involving terrorism or nuclear nonproliferation. These are the sorts of interests whereby in some cases in the Middle East, it is unthinkable that regimes that non-democratic regimes might survive in the absence of foreign aid or external support. Whereas in other regions, we often think external support is a nice supporting factor, but it's not it's not the full story. I think in the Middle East we know that you can't tell the story of domestic politics without also telling the story of transnational structures and external interests. Thanks, Sean. It's a great
0: overview of the, of the major themes of the chapter. Uh, Andre, uh, you then in the chapter go into four kind of baskets of issues that are raised in the study of authoritarianism. Can you tell us a little bit about them and how your group of authors uh,
3: ultimately ended up addressing each of them? Yes, um, there are four trends that, that we look at uh, a bit more in detail. The first one is the resurgence of um, personalistic uh, politics or personalization. The second one is the deepening of repression. The third one is the relationship of culture and compliance. And the fourth and final one are international and transnational factors of authoritarianism. Um, let me start out with the first one, uh, the the resurgence of personalistic politics here it has often been argued that in the more broader literature in comparative politics, that once authoritarian regimes become particularly personalistic, um, they are doomed to fail. They become more fragile because instead of, you know, institutions, um, it is basically the character traits of an individual ruler, which in extreme cases can even border uh, on personality cults by this Slowly but gradually undermining um, undermining regime stability. This has been argued by by you know numerous authors uh, prominent in the field, uh, from Juan Linz to Barbara Geddes. I think what we are seeing in the MENA region, um, on the one hand, is a trend that indeed these Arab presidents for life, as uh, uh, Roger Owen has called them, have been doomed to failure once they tried to make their sons become the future rulers. We've seen this in Egypt uh, with Hosni to Gamal Mubarak with Saddam Hussein and some of his sons, with Gaddafi in Libya with Ali Abdullah Saleh. And that's why as a kind of short anecdote, uh, Roger Owen very late um, changed the title of his book from um, The Rise and, and Fall of Arab presidents for life. So we see first the ambivalence um, of this personalism, but also post 2011, we see a very interesting trend in the region that runs a bit against the broader assumptions in comparative politics, namely that personalization happens and at least in the short to midterm can be functioning and even stabilizing. Um, We are discussing this um, in the chapter um, with the rise of Sisi in Egypt where instead of when he took power in 2013, instead of um, building you know a regime party like uh, Mubarak did with the NDP and early Egyptian presidents did it, focus in a kind of personalist military regime, very much control in his own hands um, and trying to, you know, bordering on kind of personality cult. A similar trend can be seen in a very different um, autocracy in the region, in Saudi Arabia, where uh, first uh, Mohammed bin Salman already as crown prince, um, gained much, much more power running against what, um, what Michael Herb, one of our co-authors in his earlier work on monarchism is called kind of family rule. Uh, so even here in a monarchical system where usually many princes work mm-hmm. together, we see a trend at personalization. Now, we are not arguing in the chapter that this is going to be a stabilizing uh, feature for the future, but at least we are are presenting empirics from the region post-Arab uprisings that show some of these trends. And we can also show this in, on on a lower level, so to say, the personalization in Iraqi politics around Muqtada Sadr, the personalization of kind of sectarian rulers uh, in civil, some of the war countries or in Lebanon. So, apparently, there is something going on um, with this personalization. And the fact that it is a much broader trend that is not necessarily clear in one regime type can be seen in some of the bigger studies. Um, for instance, the book by Barbara Geddes et al., How Dictatorships Work, don't use personalist regimes as regime type anymore, but as a cross cutting issue across different regime types. So I think here is like one um, important contribution uh, that this chapter makes. In the section on deepening repression, we of course uh, focus on the various forms um, that repression has taken by a number of, you know, state or regime actors, this this disaggregation that is also discussed in another chapter in the book on the military and on the militias, on the kind of different types of repressive actors. but also um, at the kinds of repression that it takes, whether it's indiscriminate, whether it's targeted and so on. Going down in a more fine-grained analysis where unfortunately one could say from a normative perspective, our region has very much to offer. Um, We also discuss in the section something that has really emerged in the last years, uh, post 2011, and that is the rise of new technologies um, that has also used to mo- do more efficient or a different type uh, of repression, be it spyware, be it drones, be it um, different types of artificial intelligence linked to um, to surveillance. So we are we are raising these issues because, in a way, the Middle East is also a testing ground for some of this. And you know, the Pegasus software that kind of was discovered. And the linkages uh, show between the UAE, uh, Israel, the United States shows that here again regime type is very much blurry. Democracies, formal democracies, formal uh, authoritarian regimes work work together, and this is definitely something looking into the future where much more research on authoritarianism will be going. The third section um, focuses much more on on questions of symbols um, on cultural uh, practices, um, criticizing all too simplistic understandings of legitimacy or measure or, 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 or the understanding that many uh, of the MENA populations believe uh, what the, um, what the, um, the respective uh, dictators tell them, rather Uh, It's a more fine-grained understanding of ideology and cultural practices that is often at play here. And Lisa Widin, one of our co-authors in one of her work actually speaks about uh, ideology as interpolation as uh, sowing doubts sometimes and in that as an effective strategy of rule. Uh, Fourth and final, um, we discuss uh, in the chapter, the increasing, use also diversification if you want of international and transnational factors of course the region has seen very military uh, military interventionism uh, as a more uh, drastic repressive form of an international uh, effect on authoritarian regimes with the intervention in Iraq 2003 and Libya in 2011. We've also seen what Sean has uh, explained before already in the 90s and 2000s prior to the Arab uprising, the kind of democracy prevention policies, the support by Western democracies for loyal stable autocracies uh, in the region via foreign aid and various uh, types of military support. But what we see really post 2011 is a much more nuanced forms of the way the external and the domestic play into each other. A certain strand of literature under the header of autocracy promotion, for instance, um, discusses the one-sided top-down support of regimes in the region in a very broad base. And here, of course, in addition to these Western countries, there's the emerging role of China and. Russia in the region and the allies that they support. But also what has become much more clear in the last decade or so has been the relevance of regional actors uh, supporting other autocracies in the region, Saudi Arabia, for instance, in Bahrain uh, or the United Arab Emirates in some contexts, uh, Iran in Syria, et cetera. I think what, what the MENA cases also show that a simplistic understanding of autocracy promotion is really not working. And it's less about promoting autocracy and more actually about supporting like-minded loyal partners. It is not the kind of promoting of a certain type of autocracy. So the Chinese don't want to establish communist party rule all over the MENA region. And also there is a discussion about authoritarian sponsorship where rather than discussing the regime as a whole, there's been more specific targeted support of some authoritarian practices, be it uh, you know more effectively uh, repressing uh, certain uh, regimes, and Sean, in other research, has shown the kind of cross-policing that happens here and how some monarchies work together um, uh, in the in the field of repressing opposition. Um, There's also uh, emerging literature coming from the region on what's called authoritarian diffusion, namely the diffusion of policies, let's say, around restrictions of NGOs, of uh, journalism, of uh, civil liberties. And we've seen this in literature in the region on anti-terrorism legislation, how it's spread at the same time, in different contexts. And sometimes the laws are even copy and pasted from each other. Here Arabic as a lingua franca is kind of helpful in this. We've also seen this in the post-Soviet space with Russian uh, spreading of this kind of legislation and in the region, particularly when it comes against with repressing the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in various countries post 2013. So this is kind of the landscape of what the the, the chapter covers. And with these four trends, we try to provide on the one and more nuance to existing uh, uh, approaches and theories in comparative politics. We want to challenge them in some, in some parts, for instance, with the personalization, and we want to provide some more rich uh, avenues for future research. Fantastic. Um, so I guess, let me go back to
0: Sean um, and, you know, at the end of the day, we have this long, rich tradition of the study of authoritarianism and in all of its components in the in Middle East uh, studies. Um, and uh, Andre, as he was speaking, flagged a number of trends uh, that are post two thousand eleven. So, Sean, you know, when you think about how the literature has changed uh, since two thousand eleven, uh, what what are some of the things that you think that we've learned in terms of? you know, getting rid of older hypotheses or developing new ones um, as our communities engaged with this decade of new information about, uh, about authoritarian practices.
2: I think the most important lesson that Millie's political scientists are teaching uh, their colleagues outside the region is that concepts and theories have to be in very intimate dialogue with data and with insights from the field, because the assumptions we have in researching these regimes and states can often be radically appended once we see how leaders and institutions adapt and evolve in a very short period of time. So so as Andre was speaking about personalization, for instance, it struck me that this will be not just an open question of durability and longevity for many of the regimes that Uh, have been invoked in today's discussion, regimes such as the the monarchy of Saudi Arabia under Mohammed bin Salman, for instance. But this is also a broader theoretical question that comparativists have have to grapple with. If it is true that personalistic qualities of authoritarianism can often be a weak underbelly in their rule, then the obvious question is, and then how come there are there is a non-trivial number of regimes and states in the region that engage in these practices? Why is Sisi not creating a dominant hegemonic ruling party in Egypt in the same way that his predecessors have? Why is Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman concentrating so much power in his singular office and his close coterie of advisors and consultants? rather than allowing his family to run their fiefdoms in a way that they have for generations. Um, Whether or not this kind of personalism is successful as a new authoritarian strategy or quality, uh, or if it's going to be a failure, that's an open question. And Mina Comparativists will be at the forefront of answering that question and showing the rest of comparative political science, how personalism as a practice not just as a type of government, but as a practice, how it coexists with other strategies of rule. I think that the issue of repression gives us another chance to observe how regional specialists are talking to the rest of political science and showing how quickly things can change on the ground uh, prior to the Arab Spring. And really even now um, in in some other non-Middle East contexts, the language we, uh, the, that political scientists often use to talk about violence and coercion and repression, still seems like it's locked in the late 21st century. We often talk about the cost of repression, how violent it is, how many people can be suppressed when democratic opposition forces engage in an uprising or they engage in dissent and governments fight back. But we live in a world now where boundaries exist on paper, but they don't always. Interrupt the flow of technologies and ideas uh, and tactics that are shared among communities or alliances or networks or partnerships of non-democracies. And that technology, whether it's the uh, whether it's spyware, like the Pegasus example that Andre mentioned, or simply new ways of sharing information or of conjointly suppressing opposition, such as the spread of very similar sounding anti-terror laws in the region uh, that are a cloaked way of stifling dissent. When we think about all uh, all these ways that technologies and ideas spread across borders, we come to the stunning realization that this is not the repression of a generation ago, that we cannot talk about repression or violence anymore as if it were Security forces beating down the protest as macabre and uh, as as upsetting as those scenes are, or of regimes in the in, in the very old school kind of way, locating someone, arresting them and making them disappear. Now it's different. Now regimes and states have radically new, low-cost ways of harassing people, intimidating people, surveilling people, tracking people at home and abroad. They talk to one another in ways that we never could have imagined a generation ago. And they do so with the complicity of global institutions um, and Western sponsors like the United States, and in many cases, the European Union. So we need to update our conceptual language to figure out if this is the wave of the future, if regimes and states will continue to be highly repressive, then how do we talk about repression that acknowledges the weakness of boundaries, the importance of technology, and the malleability of strategies that regimes and states are now using? We can't do it using the literature from 20 or 30 years ago. And we adapt our language to account for these new developments, I think that, and as Andre mentioned, not for the most pleasing of reasons, because this is a topic that upsets many of us morally and ethically, but I think that regional specialists would be uh, really at at the cutting edge of this literature, because this is something that we observe in the countries that we uh, explore, that we try to do field work in, and that we have charted out very meticulously uh, since the Arab Spring.
1: Great,
3: Andre, how about uh, uh, the same question to you? Thanks. Um, Sean has already answered it very thoroughly. Um, just a few things um, that um, I'd like to add at the end and probably moving even a little bit beyond um, the chapter. So I think for one, since we, since we drafted this um, or since we we wrote this uh, in an old process of publication, we've seen another case in the region of um, a massive personalization of rule, and that is Tunisia under Kais Saied, um, which you know is another interesting um, uh, case to study how, in the kind of lone alleged success case of the Arab uprisings, uh, this process of uh, personalist autocratization or authoritarian personalization unfolded. I think, to me, Kais and also a number of the other cases. Um, that we look at um, in the chapter, be it uh, Egypt under Sisi or um, probably also Turkey under Erdogan. To me, um, there's also a field uh, linked to this personalism, and that's the whole debate around populism that is very much broader in other discussions. We haven't done those thoroughly in this chapter, but I think that's another avenue for research uh, where, where the Middle Eastern, uh, the MENA, you know political science can contribute to broader debates, and it should probably more, pretty much along the lines of what Sean has uh, outlined in the sense of being nuanced about the concepts and what is actually unfolding uh, in the region. Um, However, a note of caution at the end, I think what is really a challenge for us in the MENA Polisai community, uh, with this increasing repression in the region and the kind of consolidation of rather harsh forms of authoritarianism, is that some kind of research that was possible in a number of countries is very hard to do. And the MENA, um, the MENA scholars have, of course, in the last decade, started new methodologies. You know, all kinds of social media-related um, studies that can sometimes you know brought in here surveys um, in some of the countries where it is possible, uh, field experiments and and so on. So I think what we didn't discuss so much here, but what it is in other chapters in the book and and Mark in your introduction too, is the kind of challenge of doing some of the research. And I think here again, we need to reflect, especially as we study authoritarianism um, and how to do that in an ethically and kind of normatively sound manner. So I think probably in the end, that's kind of a bit of a note of caution also to us um, on how to go about this. Thanks.
0: And I think those concerns about, uh, about ethical research and access to the field, uh, that's a theme that runs through the entire volume and one that I think we as a community uh, are all engaging with uh, in, in very difficult ways. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Andre and Sean, for joining us to speak about chapter two, authoritarianism reconfigured.